I'm Matt. Hey, I'm Steve. Hey, I'm John. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. We're here for the sober curious, the new guy, and the old timer. Here to talk about the stuff anyone looking to live alcohol-free has to face day-to-day and how we overcame those struggles. We speak for no 12-step group, but we do try to remain anonymous. You're not alone. This is the Sober Friends Podcast. If you're someone who's new and you're just getting into the big book, hell, if you're somebody who has been sober 20 years and you're reading the big book and half the time you're looking and saying, I can't figure out what this is, so I've had to do a Joe and Charlie for 20 years. Man, I've got the book for you. And I've got the author for you. Interviewing today, Bill Shaberg. He is the author of Writing the Big Book, The Creation of AA. Bill, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much for asking me, Matt. Yeah, absolutely. If Steve was here, I would have the real cheap joke of the reason that he has a, a boot on his foot is he dropped his your book on his foot. This is a big book. It is a big book. When it first came out, my uh, and we got the, the hard copy in the house for the first time, my lady Sarah said, my God, it's the bigger book. <laughs> yeah, I saw, I saw that either in one of your interviews or on the YouTube channel that you mentioned that. And I felt good saying, oh my gosh, I can use this joke that you could drop it on somebody's foot and break it. It is a meaty, meaty book. What got you in the process of writing about the history of writing the big book? I started out uh, investigating in the archive to find out how many copies of the Multilith was actually printed. So the February before the book was printed, book was printed on April 10th, 1939, they, they did an offset printed copy. There was no Xerox machines in those days. This was a, a much more elaborate printing process. And, and they, they, they did a number of copies of this book, and I had bought one of those at auction. And I wanted to know how many of how many copies were actually printed. There's different reports, 100, 200, 300. Bill always said 400. So I went down to the archive, finally got into the archive, and I started looking for the invoice to find out how many copies had been printed. I never found the invoice. I never resolved the issue that drove me into this project in the first place. But then I got down into the archive and I started seeing documentation that was like really, really, really interesting and most especially at times contradictory to the stories that I've been told in, uh, at that point, 30-plus years in Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went farther into the story and farther into the story. I, I backed up from April to February of 1939 into 1938, and then even back into 1937 and uh, did a deep dive. I spent the equivalent of months down in the archive going through stuff and trying to touch every single piece of paper from certainly from 1936, 1937, 1938, and the second half of 1939, which resulted... I was amazed. I was... I was flabbergasted by how much information there was down there that, as far as I could tell, nobody had ever incorporated into any of any, any of the writings about Alcoholics Anonymous history. Some of it showed up in Ernie Kurtz's book because Ernie did that kind of archival research. But Ernie wrote about the entire history of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I ended up focusing on 18 months, October 1937, when they said, hey, we should write a book. And April of 1939, 18 months later, when the book was published. Hey, we should write a book after there's a bunch of other things we'd rather do, but we'll settle on the book. Well, in the beginning, there was, there was a, a three-part plan. This is the famous Counting Noses meeting in Akron, Ohio, in October of 1937. And they, they count noses, and they, they come up with 40 people. 
Now, of course, Bill at different times said different numbers, but they're all in the zone of 40 people. And, 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 and they were like, wow, wow, we found a cure for alcoholism. We found a cure for alcoholism. We have got to get this message out farther and wider and deeper because we can save people's lives today because we got the answer here. So what we need to do is they... they, well, they let's w- back up a second. What was the treatment for alcoholism before 1938? <laughs> there was a number of different things going on, most especially in the Northeast. But, uh, but you know, there was the Emanuel movement up in Boston. There was all these different things. Those things are really kind of outside my area of expertise. I, 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 I had this laser-like focus on this one early, early period of Alcoholics Anonymous history. So when I want to find out about those kind of things, what was being done, I mean, one of the things that was being done was Bill Wilson was at Towns Hospital uh, three times, perhaps four times, one of those little controversies that people go down that rabbit hole and don't come back out for a couple of years, and, and there's no solution to that. But he was in, in Towns Hospital where they, they, they gave him the, what they called the Belladonna treatment, and there's all kinds of things that have been written about that. And the Belladonna treatment that was used at Towns Hospital changed over time, and there's been good research done on that. Gary Needhart's done some wonderful, wonderful work on that. So that's what was going on in those days. But all of a sudden, they've got 40 people sober. Now, at the time, you know, and still today, hospitals don't like to take drunks in. So, so they decided, Bill Wilson, this was his plan. He had a three-part plan. We need, we, need, we need a string of Alcoholics Anonymous hospitals all across the country. And, and this, is a, this whole idea of having a national chain was a brand new thing. You've got to realize this is 1937. And yeah, there's no McDonald's or Burger King with a No, but there's, there's, a, there's a A&P is coming around, and they're, and <laughs> right. they're, and they're, and they're doing A&Ps all across the country. So, so we're going to have a string of alcoholics hospitals. We're going to need a bunch of paid guys setting up meetings and, 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 and getting patients that they could feed into the hospital. So we, we, need, we need paid workers out there in the field. And then we need a book explaining uh, what, what our solution is, what our, what our cure is. And they called it a cure in those days. They had a cure. And um, so those three things were, were proposed in, in, in October of 37. Bill didn't actually pick up a pen and start writing or typing, whatever. Bill was actually the writer. He wasn't, he had a typist. Uh, he didn't start writing until uh, May 20th of 1938. So we went from mid-October 1937 to May of 1938, all focused on the hospital project, all hospital, getting money to, for paid workers. We're go- that's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And finally, that stuff, they weren't getting any money. So that wasn't going to happen. And they finally decided Hank Parkhurst actually was pushing Bill in the beginning to write just two chapters. I just need, Bill, I just, I just need two chapters. And if you give me two chapters, we're going to get our foot in the door with some rich people who are going to cough up the cash so we can have paid missionaries and we can have a string of hospitals all across the country. And Wilson, Wilson under that kind of pressure from his right-hand man, Hank, wrote Bill's story. And there is a solution. Every once in a while, somebody will reach out to me and say, you got to look into Hank Parkhurst. Hank Parkhurst was a big name. He did a lot. I would say other than those three or four who reach out, maybe 95% of people don't know who Hank Parkhurst is. Who is Hank and how important was he at this time? Hank Parkhurst is, uh, I I call him the the unknown co-founder or the co-founder who drank. 
the problem was that Hank got sober. It was the Hank was the very first person that Bill Wilson got sober when he came back from Ohio, having gotten Dr. Bob and a couple of other guys sober as a group. He comes back to New York City, and in September of 1935, he gets Hank Parker sober, and then two months later, Fitz Mayo. Those are the those are the two big people that were close to Bill Wilson within the program. But kind most pol- polar opposites fits in and Hank, especially with religion. Totally different on a religious thing. And and Hank was Hank was this very, very high pressure kind of guy. He was he was a big, big, big personality. Fitz was more of a milk toast kind of guy. So they were they were very, very different. And when they got into the arguments about religion and how much religion should or should not go into the book, um Hank obviously steamrolled right over Fitz Mayo with no problem when they were doing those arguments, which they did have in early 1939, especially as the book was coming together in a more formal way. But Parkhurst was uh, Parkhurst was uh, the guy who over and over and over again uh, was lighting a fire under Bill Wilson to, to actually do this writing. So he, he got him to write these two chapters in, in May into early June. And then Bill Wilson doesn't do any writing for three months. They're, they're, they're using those two chapters to get themselves appointments, which were always failures. They never got the money. They got the appointments, but they didn't get the money. And then Hank comes up with a deal in September that, that they're going to have an article in a big magazine and in the art, about, about, about the cure. And in the article, Hank wants the guy who's writing the article to say, listen, we're writing a book uh, and we haven't finished it yet, but if you send us a dollar, we'll send you some of the chapters of the book. And, and then he, he, he goes to Bill Wilson and he says, listen, Bill, if they're going to send us a dollar, we got to give them more than two chapters. We need, oh, I, I, I need, to, how about five chapters? Can, can you whip out a couple of more chapters? And Wilson starts writing the book on September 15th. And, and he once he gets into the project, he, he writes the entire book at that point so that by December 31st, the book's handed to the first non-alcoholic editor that, that works on the book, Tom Usel. So within three and a half months, Bill Wilson has written the big book. So we got, we got like four weeks or three and a half weeks in May, June of 1938 and three and a half months at the end of the year in 1938. Bang, the book is done. It still needs editing and a whole bunch of major changes are made to it past that point, but the book was done. Sounds like Hank was really, if Hank's not around, maybe this book doesn't get done because he was really good at just pushing and pushing and motivating and getting Bill to do this stuff. Matt, you just prompted me to say something I say most times when I do presentations on Hank and on the book, and that is, no Hank, no big book. That's that. That's really, really the deal. We certainly would not have had a book published on April 10th, 1939, if in fact Hank Parkhurst hadn't been part of this equation. Would we have had a book at some point? Yeah, we probably would have. Uh, but, but would it have been the book that we ended up with on April 10th, 1939? I suspect not. I suspect we wouldn't have a program that's as widely ex- accepted because of the way Bill first wrote those steps. That from reading the book, it was Hank who kind of calmed him down a little bit. And you talked a lot about the arguments between Fitz and Hank and Hank steamrolling Fitz. Reading in the book, they had these discussions about how they should talk to God. Hank steamrolled Fitz. Then he turned his attention to Bill. I can steamroll you too. Real. High-pressure personality. He was definitely, high, you know, people talk about Bill Wilson as being a, you know, high-pressure salesman kind of thing, you know, a type A kind of guy. If Bill was a type A guy, Hank was about a triple A type 
kind of oh, guy. Yeah. I mean, he was he was really really, and he and Wilson, when Wilson was writing the very first two chapters, first of all, you can hardly complain about a guy's personal story. This is what happened to me. Okay, we can do that. Now you can tone down a bunch of the verbiage so it's not quite so. So I got sober on Jesus, which is. Quite frankly, Wilson got sober in the early days in the Oxford group, as, as did all the people who got sober in the early days. And those people were, let's face it, those people were staying sober with Jesus. That's what they were doing. Now, that changed, and it morphed over time. And one of the reasons it morphed, there was a lot of reasons. It's not just one thing. Nothing is ever just one thing. Life is a, a complicated, messy process. Oh, yeah. But but the process here certainly was Hank Parkhurst was the mover and shaker. He did not he, he tried to get Wilson to take the word God out. He was good with higher power. Higher power was the kind of suggestion that Hank Parkhurst was making. Don't don't say God over there. Why don't you say higher power? I could live with that a little bit easier. And by the way, we need to put this thing in if you're going to use the word God, we want to put in as we understood him. So that there's an openness to this. There's there's a there's a there's a, a a real chance for me to come with my own understanding, whatever's working for me. And Wilson, Wilson, for all his insistence that that the way he got sober was the way you should probably get sober, which is what I see happening in the big book over and over and over again. It's Bill Wilson's experience as opposed to Oh, it was all the experience of the hundred men, and the hundred men all helped write the book. I, I, I don't, I don't see that in, in in the contemporary documents. What I see is Bill Wilson writing the book, and Bill Wilson's basically writing about what got him sober, and he's suggesting that if you follow the things that got him sober, you're probably going to get sober too. If you saw more than one writer, you would see a change in the writing style. That writing style, except for one of the chapters, is pretty much all the same. Absolutely. And the one chapter that's very, very different is uh, Two Employers, which was written by Hank Parkhurst, which, by the way, doesn't mention the word God anywhere and, uh, and, and has no real emphasis on the spiritual solution. Hank was looking for a solution based on what Dr. Silkworth called moral psychology. So if you read the doctor's opinion, the, he mentions moral psychology, but there's no explanation of it. And Silkworth had written an article uh, in, in 1937 that he published. And, and in that article, he explained what he meant by moral psychology. And what he meant by moral psychology was you really, you know, you as an alcoholic, you are so self-centered. You are so focused on you. You are just obsessed with, and you got, you got blinders on. You can't see anybody else. What you need to do is to take the blinders off, get your head out of your butt <laughs> and pay attention to other people. Moral psychology is expanding your universe and expanding the, your, your, your focus of your life to include other people. Now, if you look into in in our book, uh, I mean, this whole idea about, about working with others and, and, and being useful to others, I always have to look at this. So working with others gets mentioned 11 times in the big book, and, uh, and useful and helpful to others gets 72 mentions in the big book. So... Parkhurst was emphasizing this moral psychology approach. And really, when he was arguing with Bill, he wasn't even saying, look, this is my idea. He's saying, this is what Silkworth is talking about. This is how he believed people got sober. Yeah, it sounds like reading in the book, Silkworth was somebody who kind of sat Bill down and said, you got to stop with the God talk. You got to dial it back at least until you talk about this moral psychology thing. Tell him about your experience, because up until Dr. Bob, he's not getting anybody sober, but he's staying sober. And he tries Silkworth's approach, 
And his first person he tries this with is Dr. Bob. Amen. And it did work with Bob. You know, Silkworth told him before, suppose, this is according to Wilson, told him before he went out to Ohio, is you got, you got to stop trying to shove this white light experience that you had down people's throat. It's not going to work. You, you, you need to go out there and give them what he called the hard medical facts. And so <laughs> I always think, I think there's a real humor to that. That So here you got this guy who's, a, who's an entrepreneurial Wall Street guy going out and meeting a doctor and giving the doctor hard medical facts that he's bringing from New York City, you know? And uh, so he, he does that. And if you look at the second forward in our book, Wilson tells that story about going out there. And he says, once he gave him the hard medical facts and told him that the, 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 the outline of their solution, that, that, that all of a sudden, despite the fact that the doctor had tried all kinds of spiritual means before, all of a sudden, those bits and pieces fit together in a way that made sense to him. And he did, in fact, uh, get on the sobriety train. You talked about the Oxford groups a little bit. If you've done a Joe and Charlie, you probably have heard the term. If you've got somebody who is an old timer in the room, they may have talked about the history. But a lot of people may not have heard the history of the Oxford groups. What were the Oxford groups? How did they lend to AA? Well, the Oxford group was the soil out of which Alcoholics Anonymous grew. I mean, it, it's, it's almost impossible to, 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 to underestimate, you know, I mean, to overestimate their, uh, their, their importance. Uh, I, again, the, the OG is, 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 is a bit outside my area of expertise, although I have a, a, a number of friends who, AA historians, who are really, really solid on that. <clears throat> but it was, a, it was a first century Christian movement. What do, you, what do you mean by a first century Christian movement? What we're talking about is that, is that we're looking to get back to the basic, simple Christianity that one can find when you read the New Testament without all the doctrinal stuff that started after the Council of Nicaea in the 300s when, when all, of, all of a sudden we started, started having uh, uh, doctrinal arguments and, and beliefs that were necessary to believe if you're going to be a Christian. What they want to do is get back to the modern the, 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 the mantra that, that, that runs throughout the New Testament, but most especially and most explicitly is said in John, which is, by this shall you know that, uh, that, shall they know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. So when I look back and you look at Alcoholics Anonymous, think of a God of your conception, this really started as a Jesus organization. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, 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 I did a little presentation uh, a couple of months ago for, for uh, friends of mine, uh, and uh, on a Zoom presentation, and you know, I, I said, you know, so what? What do we got here? Do we have anything like AA? Bill Wilson sober? No, we got a guy saying sober on Jesus. And then he goes out to Ohio, and he gets Doctor Bob sober, and he gets a couple of other guys sober, and there's like four or five guys out in Ohio, and they're staying sober, and they're going up. What are they doing? They, they've they've all gotten on their knees and surrendered, and and they're all going to Oxford group meetings. Do we have anything looking like AA yet? No, we got now we got five guys staying sober on Jesus. And and that that continues for quite a while. Um, Bill Wilson and the New York group broke from the Oxford group in May or April of 1937. <clears throat> and really once that happened, the the evolution of what was going on in this sober community moved away from the Oxford group and moved into what we, we know today as Alcoholics Anonymous. In Ohio, Dr. Bob and his entire group did not break with the Oxford group until, until December of 1939. 
months and months and months after the big book was published. Two and a half years after Bill Wilson and the people in New York separated from the Oxford group. So we had this really, really different stuff going on. I mean, in Ohio, in Ohio, in 1938, for instance, you couldn't go to one of those meetings in Ohio until you got on your knees and surrendered to Jesus. You could not do that. Whereas in New York, we've got the raving lunatic atheist Jim Burwell running mm -hmm. around saying, we don't need this God stuff. All we need to do is to get our heads out of our butts, work with other people, work with alcoholics, and that's enough to keep anybody sober, you know? So <clears throat> there was this radically, radically different program going on. It's two different programs. Two different As programs. I read it, you have Akron version of whatever they're doing, and then you really have AA in New York. In, in, AA in New York. You know, it's funny, though. <laughs> The um, Clarence always said, so uh, Clarence, Clarence Schneider is, is, is the guy from Cleveland. He gets sober in uh, February of 1938. And he's got all the, he gets these guys and he's bringing them down to Akron every Wednesday night for the big meeting at T. Henry Williams house. It's an Oxford group meeting. And a bunch of the guys are Catholics and they're having problems. Blah, 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 blah. So anyhow, when the book comes out in April of 1939, a month later, Clarence, this is Dr. Bobby says, we're not coming down here anymore. We're not doing this Oxford group stuff anymore. We're going to have a meeting in Cleveland. We got this book. We got these 12 steps. They were brand spanking new 12 steps. They were only months, four months, five months old at the point at that point. Since Bill Wilson put them on paper for the first time. We're gonna have our own meeting up there. And all of a sudden, Clarence has got this meeting up in up in up in Cleveland, and that's what they're doing. Alcoholics only. Absolutely no Oxford group people are allowed, and we're going to use this book, and we're going to follow the program in this book and stay sober. Now, Clarence always claimed that that was the first real Alcoholics Anonymous meeting in the world. And you Bill, make a point of that. Bill always protested that, well, we've been doing this in New York City for, you know, we, we haven't been doing this Oxford group stuff for two and a half years at this point. Well, yeah, that's true. But there was no 12 steps in, in those years that they had. Because Bill wrote the Bill wrote the steps probably in the first week of December, nineteen thirty-eight. Really, really, December nineteen thirty-eight. He sat down and wrote the twelve steps, and there was there was there was really no no kind of step work program before that. What was Dr. Bob's reaction when the Cleveland group said, "Hey, we're not going to do this anymore"? He's the co-founder of AA. He knows the book's being written. He has the manuscript. So, what does Dr. Bob say? Dr. Bob and, 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 and the Oxford group people, both drunks and non-drunks, non-alcoholics, uh, <clears throat> actually drove 40 miles up to Cleveland and tried to break that meeting up because they, found, they, they thought it was a heretical thing to be doing. I have this view of like late 1800s, early 1900s labor move, movement of like labor busters coming in here to break this up. I think this is the point where... I started to have a different opinion of Dr. Bob at the moment. And I have to take myself away from the fact that it's at the time, this could be threatening. And I understand Dr. Bob's mindset of what's worked for us is going to keep us sober. If you people over here don't do this, you're going to start drinking. So I'm thinking from that mindset, but I'm also thinking of, he's got the, he's got the background of being the co-founder of AA and clearly he's not on board with what Bill's doing. Hey, that's great that you're doing this book, but we're going to do this Oxford group thing over here. Yeah, the Ohio thing and and the Dr. Bob story is 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 a fascinating fascinating thing to me. I mean, one of the reasons I I was I was 
one of my friends was taking me home from my home group years ago, and he said, so listen, uh, who besides uh, Dr. Bob and Bill would be on, on the AA Mount Rushmore? And I looked at him and I said, um, I'm not sure Dr. Bob would make the AA Mount Rushmore. <laughs> and I, my friend just about drove off the road. You know, he thought that was, talk about heretical. Now that was heretical. But um, Bob, Bob really was, in fact, doing a completely different program. And, and although he was supportive of Bill, he was supportive of Bill as anybody would be supportive of the man who got you sober. I mean, they weren't using the phraseology in those days, but Bill Wilson was Dr. Bob's sponsor. And, and you know, you don't cross your sponsor. Your sponsor says, take a left, you take a left. You know, I mean, one of, one of the great, great things about success in Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the hallmarks of success in Alcoholics Anonymous, in my opinion, is do what you're told. You just... I don't. It's interesting what you think, and we're interested in how you feel. But what I really want is I want you to do these things, and uh, and I think that was true of, of Bob in relation to Bill and the the writing of the book and the whole evolution of 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 this this document and this manuscript and then this publication, which. Still today, what do we do when we get a newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous? We sit down with them and we take them through the book. So Bob has this huge reputation as being the co-founder of AA, as if there's equality between him and Bill Wilson in the creation of this book, which is, which is Alcoholics Anonymous today. Ask anybody in the program, what, what, what do you do? You, oh, we take them through the book. That's what we do. Because the book is our is the presentation of our solution. The 12 steps is, 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 is what we need to do so that we can get to that spiritual awakening that, that's mentioned in the 12th step, because the spiritual awakening is what's going to stand between me and the first drink, because I am a real alcoholic, and, I, and the insanity of the first drink sooner or later is going to get me. I'm going to pick up that drink no matter what I've said, no matter what I promised. But my understanding of, of, of the great secret of Alcoholics Anonymous is that, A, if you're a real alcoholic, <clears throat> you've got no defense against the first drink. No defense against the first drink, except up, up, two. If you get yourself a spiritual awakening, there's a good chance that's going to stand between you and you picking up that first drink. So that's what you need. But that isn't what they were, that isn't what they were doing in Akron at the time. No, and they're fairly loyal to Bob. Like that group was, they looked to Bob as their leader. They are still loyal to Bob. I mean, I've been out to Dr. Bob's house a number of times, uh, three times. And, uh, you know, you go up to Ardmore Avenue and Dr. Bob's house and you knock on the door and somebody opens the door and they say, friend of Bill's? And you say, yeah, I'm a friend of Bill's. And they say, welcome home. As if the epicenter of Alcoholics Anonymous is Ardmore Avenue in Akron, Ohio, where the Smiths lived. Welcome home. It's, uh, the people in Ohio still aren't very fond of Bill Wilson. You know, his, uh, when, when they were writing the book, trying to write the book, everybody out there seemed to think he was going to make a ton of money off it. And it was a money-making scheme. And, uh, you know, I, I always say that, <clears throat> that the Akron, the Akron kind of vision about out who, who Bill Wilson was, was that he was a snake oil salesman from New York City. And he was going to ruin the whole thing, ruin the whole thing. But of course, if we didn't have the book, if we didn't have the 12 steps, 
we wouldn't have a thing at all. I think that's the roadmap. And I think a lot about Bill Wilson today. So this is this is where I juxtapose the tradition of promotion the, or, or is attraction, not promotion, where back at that time, I would make a case it was a lot of promotion. If you wanted to have an AA group in your town, like say you wanted to come up to Connecticut, you had to go and find another alcoholic to have a group. You had to go through the directory, go to a hospital, go to the bars, because it's not like today where it's easy to be lazy. You can find three meetings at the same time in your town, depending on where you are. And you can say, well, I don't want to go to that meeting because I don't like that guy. And I don't like that guy. And I don't really like this third meeting, but it's the least offensive to me. Now, if you wanted to go up to say Hartford, Connecticut and have a meeting in 1938, you needed to go recruit some people to have a meeting. You had to do some serious sales work. Amen. That's what they were doing. And Bill Wilson was a salesperson. No doubt about it. He was, he was a very convincing salesperson. Bill Wilson was a master politician. Parkhurst was a, was a, they they called him a, a high pressure guy. You know, he was he was he was the guy who was you know selling stock in what what turned into Works Publishing. You know he he was he was really really a, a mover and a shaker and a pusher. And Bill in a in a letter that he wrote to the to the foundation board in uh, September late September of 1938. You know he talks at length about how successful Hank Parkhurst is with with uh, businessmen. And, and, of course, that's really who they were in those days. They were just a, a bunch of white Protestant businessmen, you know, middle-class men in, in, uh, in America at the time. But Parkhurst was just fabulous with those guys. And in, in, in the beginning, certainly in, in New Jersey where they were, he was getting referrals from doctors. What, what, what it says in a vision for you is, you know, if you read the book and get sober— the next thing you do is go talk to a local doctor and get him working with you on, 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 on this program, sending you people that he admittedly, by his own admission, can't really be successful with, can't do anything with. You go to the doctor and say, listen, I got this thing. It's working for me. If, if you send me some more guys, I'll, I'll show them how to do this. And that's really how those, those meetings got started. So, yeah, there was a lot of salesmanship involved with it. Uh, my friend uh, Mike was talking to me the other day about Clarence. I mentioned Clarence again from Cleveland. When Clarence got sober, uh, he was in the hospital. And, and according to Clarence, all 16 sober members of the Akron group at that time visited him in the hospital. And then after days and days of this, four or five days of this, Dr. Bob finally shows up. And what they've been doing is they've been, shell they've been selling him. They've just been selling him on the fact that they haven't had a drink they used to be just like he is, but now they haven't had a drink. And he's bought into that. He, he's seen enough evidence that it's like, man, these guys got something. What do they got? What do they got? And Clarence, Dr. Bob shows up. He says, these guys keep showing up. Nobody's telling me what it is. And Dr. Bob says, well, you got to surrender. You got to surrender to God. And, and Clarence says that Dr. Bob got him down on his knees Clarence said, was not a praying guy. He said, I don't know how to pray. He said, get down on your knees. So he and Dr. Bob get down on their knees in the hospital. And Dr. Bob says, Clarence, this is Jesus. Jesus, this is Clarence. And, blah, blah, blah. and it goes on and on. It's, it, it's, it's, it's in that wonderful book, How It Worked, which is a biography of Clarence Snyder written by Mitch Kay. And, uh, and that's, that's how they were getting people sober. They were, they were selling them 
on the fact that it worked by showing them example after example after example without really going into the, you know, you got to get on your knees and surrender thing. Because if you do that in day one, most guys are going to go south on you yeah, completely. Softening them up for the hard sale. The, Absolutely. The, the car salesman there brings in his manager at the end, and that's Dr. Bob. Amen. Now you're ready to get on your knees, and I'll show you how to do it. If you want what we got, let me tell you, you got to do what we did, and this is what we all did. So come over here and get on your knees. Early on, that was when, when you go to meetings and you're new now, and it's, okay, don't worry about the God thing yet. Just listen to what people are saying. That is a radical departure from the original interpretation of how AA started. It was, you're going to be down on your knees very quickly, days, if not weeks. And that's, that's your door coming in. You talked about going to the businessmen. Who were these businessmen that Bill and Hank were talking to? Well, they were guys that were that were drunks. I mean, there's all kinds of drunks in business today, and it was true in 1938, 1937, 1939, exactly the same thing. And Wilson, and he continuously continuously used this this uh, this idea that that corporations would just get behind them completely because if they've got a guy that who's who's an executive who they've trained in they, these days, you know, if you went to work for a company, you stayed there for twenty years. They've they've got all this investment in this guy, and if if in fact you could just get him sober, he's going to turn into this fabulous employee. This fabulous employee. So, so they really thought that that corporations were going to be the great source of of, of referrals for them, and uh, and to some extent and to some degree that worked. But more so at that in the early days, they were getting most of the referrals from the hospitals from doctors. I could see that in two employers. Hank talks about you know get this book, and after reading your book, I see that more of a sales pitch. Hey, we could get a line item on a budget for a big corporation, and then they'll have a referral to constantly refill the back closet with the book of AA. Yeah. This is a revenue stream that he's looking for. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The other the other great Hank idea, and this guy had so many great ideas, <laughs> many of which did not pan out, but one of the other great ideas was he thought the insurance companies were just going to buy, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of copies of this book because so many of their claims were driven by people who were drunk, people who were dying before their time, people who were getting into car accidents, people that 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 the insurance companies would think, oh my Lord, if we could just sober some of these people up, we would our, 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 our claims would go down, we'd be paying out less money. And he was just absolutely sure that the insurance companies were going to get behind, behind the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, buy tens of thousands of copies and circulate them everywhere. Didn't happen. Didn't happen really until the 60s or the 70s when uh, the federal law was passed that all of a sudden they were going to cover a whole bunch of those uh, expenses. Um, and then that happened. He was decades ahead of his time. Yes, he was. I work for a big corporation, and we have an employee assistance program. And there is a lot of empathy extended to people who have a problem. And getting them coverage for treatment and support, FMLA laws, all of that. He just seems like he was decades ahead that the companies kind of met him, but it took a lot longer than he thought. So they were looking, they thought, they, they got an in with the Rockefellers or the Rockefeller company and feeling like this is going to be the cash cow for us. How did they get in with Rockefeller? Yeah, that was or the Rockefeller people, I should say. Well, it was the Rockefeller people. It wasn't John D. Rockefeller Jr. was, was the man at the time. Um, 
what happened was uh, Bill was Bill came come back from comes back from Ohio, and and he's just they're, they're, he's got permission now to 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 get the money so they can have the hospitals and the paid missionaries, and then they're going to probably get around to writing a book. And he goes and he can't get any money, and he, he goes uh, Bill Bill whenever he was in stressful situations, he had what he later called imaginary ulcers. So he would get these imaginary ulcers, and his brother-in-law was uh, was a. Uh, uh, a doctor. So he went to see his, his brother-in-law doctor who had a, a, a rich clientele in New York City. And, uh, and he was bitching about the fact that, that he just couldn't raise any money. If Leonard Strong was his brother-in-law and Dr. Leonard Strong. And, uh, and, um, and Strong tells him that maybe they should, uh, they should hook up with this, this guy who's in the New York Health Department, who's got an office like across the street. So they go talk to him, and that guy says to him, listen, if you've really got a cure for alcoholism, you should be talking to John D. Rockefeller Jr. That's who you should be doing. Because those people had been putting up money for, for temperance things going all the way back to the, to the 1880s and the 1890s uh, to John D. Rockefeller Sr., and uh, so Wilson, Wilson has this great comment. He says, I might as well talk to the Prince of Wales. You know, I mean, this is the Rockefeller's the richest man in the world at the time. And uh, his brother-in-law, Leonard Strong, says, you know, you know, I, I knew a guy when I was in high school and taking Bible classes. I knew a guy named Willard Richardson, Reverend Willard Richardson, and he was a close friend of John D. Rockefeller Jr. I wonder if he's still there at the Rockefeller organization. And he, they call, and he's still there. And that's, that's the hookup. That's the link up between Bill's brother-in-law and, and Willard Richardson, who's like John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s spiritual advisor. Rockefeller's got a, got a big office on the 56th floor of Rockefeller Center that they're building during the Depression. But outside his office is another office, and that's Willard Richardson's office. He had the, he had the office out, right outside of John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s. So Wilson hooks up with Richardson, and then Richards, uh, Richardson organizes a meeting, December 13, 1937. And, uh, and they, they, they bring in—there's four Rockefeller guys there, and there's seven drunks there. And they sit down, and they have dinner, and then they have a business meeting. And, and, and Wilson and Parkhurst and Dr. Bob is there. They make a pitch for what they need. What do we need? Look, this is what we've done. We've been this successful— we have a cure for alcoholism. What you need to do is, is we need a bunch of money here so we can start a chain of hospitals across the country, paid missionaries, and then we gotta got, got to write a book. And, and that's, how, that's how that whole process started. And they really thought that they were going to get, I mean, this is, this is, what better referral could you get? Than, than people like Willard Richardson or people like Albert Scott, people who are really, really close to John D. Rockefeller Jr. Letters of recommendation from those people were going to open doors to a lot of rich people in New York City, which it did. But for some reason, they just didn't cough up the cash. And John D. Rockefeller only coughed up $5,000. And he did that in St. Patrick's Day, 1938, and uh, and he told them, "I'm look, look, look. This is really against my better judgment, but I'm going to give you five thousand dollars for that guy out in Ohio to keep his head above water, and don't ever come and ask me for another penny again." So really begrudging, didn't want to do it. I'll give. I mean, five thousand dollars in 1938, still quite a bit of money. You can do the inflation calculator, but it's nowhere near what they want, and it's basically just enough because Dr. Bob is doing all this other work. 
he's having trouble answering the phone for his practice. So it's something to as a stipend for his income for it's like $5,000, but I'm going to pay you out over a two year period of time. And they tried to go back to him and Rockefeller wasn't going to give him anything else. Stood no. by that. No, he, he, he wouldn't do anything else for them, but it was really great that he gave Dr. Bob the money. Cause let's face it, Dr. Bob was a fabulous resource in alcohol early on. I mean, he was getting people sober left and right. He was, he was getting, he got, Twice as many people sober in Ohio as these two high-pressure guys in New York City got sober in New York City and New Jersey. It's just, that's, that's an amazing thing. Not only did they have, they had two high-powered guys in New York versus one high-powered guy in Ohio, but he's, he was, Bill Wilson, after he died, called Dr. Bob the, the Prince of Twelve Steppers. Of course, by now we know 12 Steps is working with another alcoholic and carrying the message to another alcoholic. Bob Smith was a he was brilliant at that. He 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 was he was getting it done in Ohio in a way that it was not happening in in New York City. But probably more focused. He was he was much more he had his own deal going. You know, it was it was a get on your knees and surrender kind of thing. And and once people did that, then they were in. And he he had a real a real ability to charm people to that point. Talk about being a salesman, but it's a different kind of salesperson different kind of sales approach, I should say, going on there. So I don't want to, I certainly don't want to denigrate the, the unbelievable importance of Dr. Bob in getting people sober in the very, very early days where, so that you could actually say, oh, good Lord, we've, we've got, we do have a cure. Look at, look at how many guys we got sober here. Most of those guys, by the way, two thirds of them are out in Ohio. Yeah, he, he was doing a great job with that. But that wasn't something that was going to lead to present-day Alcoholics Anonymous. That wasn't something that was going to lead to a book that was going to fuel the growth of Alcoholics Anonymous worldwide. So that, uh, what do we got? Two plus million members today and we're 80 some odd years into it. How many millions and millions and millions and millions of people have gotten sober because that book was written? No, you needed a marketing tool. And at the time, that's what people did. They read. Yeah, and isn't it amazing that people don't read that much? You talked about how big my book was. I can't tell you how many people say, oh, I'd love to read your book, but you know, it's it's 600 plus pages of text and I can't read a book that big. Well, sorry. I'll tell you how I read it. Page at a time. Read it at night before I went to sleep. I'm like, I'm going to read a few pages here. I'm going to digest it. I'm going to put it down. That's how you read a long book. It's sort of like the program, like one day at a time. How am I going to read a big book? One page at a time. How do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, if you're if you're looking at a 650 page book and you're putting it off, and you're a member of AA, you should read this book. There is a lot there, and what I found is there's a lot of things that are going to challenge you and challenge your conceptions. I go back to I want to talk a little bit about the the meeting with Ebby at the kitchen table. Hmm. It doesn't sound like it quite went the way Bill said it was. I don't think it went quite the way. One of the, I, there was a bunch of shocking things um, that came out of my research and writing that I didn't know about when I started. Um, <clears throat> one of them was, of course, the the prominence and and absolute central importance of Hank Parkhurst. Um, the second one might have been uh, the, the fact that Dr. Bob made almost no contribution to the first 164 pages of the book and and. <laughs> That sounds like that, he had a hard time getting the members out in Akron to even give stories. Oh yeah, they that, that's another great, great, great story. But 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 
the 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 biggest thing I think I struggled with in the beginning. I mean, finding out that Hank was uh, like an unknown guy, and 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 now I'm under uh, finding out all this cool stuff he did, or finding out that Doctor Bob didn't do a whole bunch of this cool stuff to get the book done. But but the big biggest problem for me personally was the fact that Bill Wilson just wasn't really a great historian. Bill Wilson was a he was a storyteller, and 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 he he told parables. Or, or mythological kind of approaches to, to things rather than historically accurate things. So <clears throat> the first chapter of my book is called Challenging the Creation Myths. And there's 30 more chapters after that. And each one of them bangs on at least one of the creation myths that Bill Wilson talked about. He was the, the primary source for almost all of those things. And one of the examples I give in that first chapter is is the kitchen table story. So everybody's read Bill's story. You know, I'm sitting there, the phone rings, I pick it up. Ebby says, oh, I'm going to come over. Ebby comes over. Bill offers him a drink. He says, I don't need a drink. I'm not, I got religion, blah, 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 blah. Bill, Bill, you know, walks him off. And that's, that's, that's the story. Well, <clears throat> Ebby told that story a whole bunch of times. Uh, I've listened to three recordings from the early 1950s, one of which was done with Bill Wilson in the audience. So it's not like it was just... And Ebby's story is completely different. Completely different. Ebby says, you know, I called and Lois answered the phone. <laughs> Lois answered the phone, really. Yeah. And uh, and I talked to Lois a little bit and she said, well, why don't you come over for dinner? So we made a dinner date and I came over for dinner. Ebby comes over for dinner and uh, and Bill and Lois and Ebby. Oh, and they've rented the top floor of their brownstone out to a woman because they need money all the time. So she's living up there. She comes down. They have dinner. The four of them have dinner. And after dinner, they go up to the second floor where the parlor is in that house. And, uh, and they're sitting there and Lois... Lois says, so, Ebby, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Now, she has obviously heard a bit of this story on the phone from him. So, And, and that's one of the reasons she wants to make sure she, he gets a chance to pitch Bill on this new way to do sober. And, and so, Ebby says he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And Bill walked him to the subway and put his arm around him and said, I don't know what you got, kid, but it sounds like something I should probably think about getting involved with, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, Bill doesn't get sober. So we got this completely different story. It's not this one-on-one -on -one over the kitchen table in the afternoon after Bill picks up the phone and Ebby shows up that same day. And I was like, what is that all about? How could, what, what is going on here, you know? And I, I stumbled over this over and over and over again where, where the stories that Wilson told were, were Pared down, they were they were they were they were simplified. You know, they he left out all. Ebby's story is just loaded with messy details, and Bill's story's not got no messy details at all. I finally realized that Wilson was this. He told parables. Bill Wilson was interested in getting people sober and telling them how to go about getting sober. So Ebby's story has the same point as Bill's story. But what, so what's the what's the point of Bill's story? Bill's story. Plain and simple, with all those messy details taken out, Bill's story is that the message of Alcoholics Anonymous is best delivered and really can only be effectively delivered when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. Lois is out of the picture. The woman upstairs is out of the picture. All of that stuff. Bill has pared that story down, and he told it over and over and over again. He really, he would, he would be asked to speak, and he said every time I went to speak, all they wanted to hear was what he called the bedtime story, the story about me, the kitchen table story. But, but <clears throat> I don't think that's how it happened. And, 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 but I can't fault Bill Wilson for that. Bill Wilson wasn't trying to tell a historically accurate story. 
Bill Wilson was trying to impress upon me, perhaps a drinking person in the audience, trying to impress upon me that this is how the message gets carried most effectively when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic. And that's repeated throughout the big book a number of times, that that is in fact how it works. That's how we work. That's how this organization works. That's how this fellowship works. We're not getting some guru telling us about, you know, the solution they developed at Yale Medical School. We're talking about this is, you know, this is what worked for me. And you know what? It could work for you, too. We are so lucky to have Bill Shaberg, author of Writing the Big Book, on this episode and we have so much more to talk about. In part two, Bill tells us what really happened when Ebby Thatcher visited Bill Wilson and is told in Bill's story, that's the kitchen table story, the problem Bill sees in most AA histories, the multiple stories Bill told over time on how the steps were written, urban legends around the authorship of Two Wives, and even more on Hank Parkhurst, arguably the most important person in writing the big book besides Bill Wilson. It's so great to have Bill with us for two episodes. If you love big book history, pick up the book, Writing the Big Book. And if you have somebody you love in recovery, pick it up for them. It's a great gift. Heck, if you're just in recovery in general, whether you're a 12-stepper or not, I think you're really going to love this book. It is a great recovery gift. Until part two, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. You made it this far into the podcast. That tells me you're a pretty big fan. If you like what we do and you find value in the podcast, consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com backslash soberfriendspod. Your donation keeps us on the air to help out the new guy and helps us defray some of our costs. If you find value in our podcast, please consider a donation at buymeacoffee.com slash soberfriendspod.